What's up, everybody? <laughs> yeah, we did it. Woo! Welcome to our podcast. We're stinked. I mean, synced. This is about movies? Yeah. And this week, it's a special episode. A yeah. very special episode. We have a special guest. We have a special guest. He's a director out in L.A., and we interviewed him a little bit, talked about his cheesecake movie, mm-hmm. which is Men in Black, which was fun to go back and watch <laughs> it was, and talk yeah. about. We, so for those of you not familiar with what a cheesecake movie is, uh, what is cheesecake? If you, if you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll know our history with uh, cheesecake films, uh, but if you're not, then let me give you a quick breakdown. Yeah. Cheesecake movies are uh, basically just a movie that you love, uh, a movie that a particular person loves, whoever it is that we're talking to, their cheesecake movie is just, it doesn't have to be a good movie, it's just a movie that just has a special place in their heart and um <laughs> sometimes it's a good movie sometimes it's not but it doesn't really matter and theoretically uh, one you would give on our old rating system the yeah. ultimate rating too yeah. exactly if you had to give a movie a rating of uh one to cheesecake factory uh what would you what would you give this movie and this would be your cheesecake factory movie and so we call it your cheesecake film uh, or your cheesecake movie so today we are talking with special guest, independent film director Simpson Sneed. Yes, and we're going to be talking about his cheesecake movie, Men in Black. Nice guy, funny guy, exactly. Yeah, I love him. Great guy to talk with. We're also going to be talking about a movie that he wrote and directed, and, and um, got, yeah, a short film that he did is in the process the of being turned into to a, a feature real film. feature film. So. Lots of exciting with stuff real to talk famous about Hollywood there. actors. Yeah, he's got lots of fun stories about his experience as an independent film director, or just a person who has worked in the film industry for for quite a while now, and all kinds of good stuff. So we really hope that you enjoyed the episode. Before we jump in, though, we have a couple things we want to talk about. The first yeah. is, if you like this show, leave a review, please. please. Say a few words. Literally, just say three words. You don't have to say anything else. You <laughs> could just say, "I love you." I love. you. Or I love this. Sub- and then you have, you feel. have to hit submit. And then, okay, you do have to click submit or whatever, <laughs> you know, verbiage they're using on the, the site that you're reviewing on. Uh, but just leave a little review. You know yeah. what? It takes a few moments, but that's okay. You got time. Or, I mean, yeah. I mean, you're sitting here listening to a podcast. Yeah. Unless you're not sitting there. I mean, I see you. <laughs> I see you not sitting there. This isn't for you. I'm not asking you to stop what you're doing. And give us a review. If you're driving, go ahead and pull over. Yeah, and yeah. Just take a but, moment. You know, to for the people who aren't doing anything else, if, if you could. If for some reason you're listening to this while you're working out, good. you know, maybe this is a good workout mix. Or maybe sure. it's a good, you know, you take a break. Between take a break. Between, between high reps. Inter- high interval you listen to, intensity uh, <laughs> training. We know yeah. all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, we train. Yeah, we have another podcast about working out. <laughs> That's how much we know about it, so. Yeah, you can check that out. Only the hits. H I I T. Only the. Jeremiah and Randy. The other. <laughs> oh my god. The o- the other thing we want to talk about is our we, Discord channel. We goofed a little bit. We go- we, uh, we made a little mistake. We uh, told you we could you could search it. That is apparently not a thing. Yep. Nope. <laughs> Can't search it. Uh, not until we have a thousand members. So we need to get there pretty so quick. So that's just um, around the corner. Just around the corner. We'll be there in just a minute. <laughs> but, but, the, but until then. Until we get there, uh, you're just going to, if you want to find our Discord, which is the best way to be in communication with us. I lo- That thing goes off and I look at it quicker than a text. Quicker than a text. <laughs> Probably because I don't hate the sound <laughs> as much yet. <laughs> the Discord notifications yeah. are more pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> 
The uh, yeah, the link for this Discord is going to be in the description of this episode. And click that. You click that and if you want. And that's exactly. <laughs> and if you don't know what Discord is, it's just a, a fun way for people to connect, get connected. It's a little app. You can get it on your phone or on your your PC or your MacBook or yeah, whatever it's, it's you have. Little, it's a little chat client. A little but chat client. When you click the link, you go specifically to our just group. to our group. <laughs> yeah. And we got all kinds of stuff in there, uh, places where you can talk about any episode that we have released. Uh, or you can go just to places you, where you can, you can just go to general and just you know say talk you in want. there. Yeah, not whatever you want. You know, so most <laughs> most of what you want <laughs> within you know, reason. Within reason. Yeah, you know, don't be a monster. But uh, <laughs> hi, hey. I hate you. <laughs> I mean, you could say Why that. Why are you coming here? And if you that? want to tell us that you hate us, please come to the Discord if you and tell us. us there. Sure, but um, another member, no, no, yeah, maybe don't, no. Please. That's not nice. Yeah. But yeah, so check out the Discord. Uh, we'd love to have you there. Ask us any <laughs> questions, or even if, if there's a, a particular thing that we dive into uh, that you want to talk more about, um, yeah, bring it up in the Discord. Best or, place or, for yeah, it. Yeah, especially, I will, like, if you tell me I'm wrong about something, I mean, I'll argue with you. <laughs> I will fight you <laughs> to the death. I will fight you. <laughs> well, we're excited again about today's episode. Uh, again, our special guest is. Independent film director Stimson Sneed and Super Funny Fun Guy Director Man. Yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, Stimson, where are you talking to us from today? Where are you at? Today I am talking to you guys from the Spokane apartment that I've been living on and off in for the better part of the last year for the production of the Tim Travers feature. I have it at a very carefully composed angle right now, so you can't see the war zone of crap behind me, including props from the film, because I'm moving out of this place in less than a week. Oh, nice. As I'm coming back to L.A. as production here is basically done. In fact, I'm pretty sure one of the film props is sitting on top of my head yes, in your the, monitor. Uh, yeah, there's a Tim Travers above your head, too. Uh-huh. And then something yeah, that like is maybe the, a film reel on the wall there, something like that, or a spool. Yeah, that's an old film reel. That above there, that's a prop from the film. That isn't, it, that's uh, his company sign that's taped to a fence in the warehouse. So mm-hmm. that's the Tim Travers Advanced Particle Solutions. That's his in-world company. Nice. And also the movie's logo. His logo is the movie's logo, just to make it as confusing as needlessly possible. <laughs> I think that's actually one of my favorite things about the short is uh, that he just has a T-shirt on that With, has his yeah, own his name, name on and it. His um, and, and at the time when I was watching it, like you're saying it's his company logo, I, I didn't see it as a company logo. I just thought he was just, he's you know. All about himself. All about himself. He's <laughs> <laughs> just... So much so that he branded that is his a, own name, and uh, yeah, look at me. <laughs> that is a fair read of the character. In fact, the shirt when we went out to Boston Sci-Fi, which was a great uh, spot to do some humble bragging, because in addition to being a fantastic festival, we basically cleaned house on awards. Nice. But the festival was such a big fan of us that when we got there, they had printed up their own t-shirts mocked up based on the company logo that our liaison was wearing that's amazing that's nice. really fun that's oh cool. <laughs> I'm, just to do a quick plug for boston sci-fi one of the best film festivals in the country and easily among the best communities very cool um, oh they're not even the only ones who did that nevermore film festival did that as well and nevermore is also fantastic nice 
happened twice. So, I mean, of course, we're talking about uh, uh, your short film, Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox. Um, yes. And so you mentioned two festivals. Well, how many festivals did that end up in? We were at a lot of festivals that year. I have to say my personal favorites were definitely Nevermore Film Festival in Boston Sci-Fi. And I have been itching with grief for the festivals I'm not at right now because I'm currently in post-production on the feature. Mm, but yeah, funny. we toured it around, met a lot of great people, had a lot of great support for the film. That's cool. That's really exciting. How long have you been making movies? Oh, God. Over 15 years now, uh, 10 years professionally. Okay. If you count what I do as professionally, which admittedly there are vast rooms for interpretation on that <laughs> word. Hey, if you get paid for it, you get paid for it. You're professionally, professional, yeah. Right? There you go. Oh, let's not use that terminology. Then, oh God. Okay. <laughs> He's like, wait a second. Well, then, no, that's uh... why every episode after we're done, I give Randy a dollar. He gives me a dollar. We're we professionals. Yeah. We're professional podcasters. I recently joined the union as a director right, because a couple of my projects since then have been self-funded. I always get a weird kick out of the check written to me from me. <laughs> Uh, Still feels nice. Still feels nice. It <laughs> feels good. Yeah, you can take that to the bank for sure. So that's good. <laughs> Uncle Sam takes a cut. You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. I I lose money in taxes by paying myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we're actually here today with you to talk about a lot of things. Uh, today is a special episode. If you're familiar with our podcast, those of you listening, you'll remember that we did a cheesecake festival last summer, and it was. Too much work. It was too, it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. And who knows if we'll do it again. We'll see. Maybe. Who knows? But we are doing a special one-off cheesecake episode today with our new friend, Stimson Seed. And we're going to talk a little bit about his cheesecake movie, as well as uh, a movie that he has directed and also, um, I'm sure, did much more than that. And some other fun things about this film. So do you want to, what do you want to continue talking about Tim Travers? Do you want to talk about your cheesecake movie? What are you feeling? I'm happy to take you, let you guys take the lead. It's your podcast. And just let me say, because this is a very special episode, we will of course be doing a message about drugs at the end. Okay, perfect. <laughs> yes. That's our listeners are expecting that. That's so fitting we need for uh, every podcast. <laughs> yes. We'll tell you where to buy them. Well, perfect. Yep. <laughs> Whoa, whoa. That's in Washington. <laughs> Not yet. Not in Mississippi yet. Okay, well, we're, I mean, we've been talking about Tim Travers. Let's just keep talking about that. So it's a short film you directed. Um, I'm sure you did a million other things on it as well. Wrote it. As short films go. Where did you come up with the idea for this? Uh, Sci-fi comedy has always been a pet genre of mine. My favorite shows are Futurama. My all-time favorite show is Red Dwarf. Mm. You're one of the ha five people on the planet who've heard of it. Other Space is a show I adore. Uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Sci-fi comedy. If we're there, I'm very happy. So that's always where my instincts tend to go. But Tim Travers was born of alcohol abuse. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's I'm, not even, I'm not even joking. The, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not even joking. I was at a film festival promoting a different short film that I had done. And by dumb luck, they premiered my short in front of not one, but two different time travel features. And I just hated both of them. <laughs> hated them to the core of my being because they focused on all the wrong things. Like people mm. use time travel as McGuffin. There's so much interesting stuff to explore with time travel. There's real scientific theory, 
explaining why time travel is impossible. And if you dig into the theory, it's really interesting. And one of those truth is stranger than fiction. And a couple of friends of mine were there who actually work in particle physics. And we watched these movies together, really hated them, went out that evening, got basically blackout drunk. And when I woke up the next morning, I found on a napkin the outline of what a good time travel story would be. <laughs> and that was Tim Travers. And I wrote that in the course of the next couple of days. Then immediately realized I could never play this character myself. I could never do this cheaply and shelved it for like six months until by dumb luck at another festival, I bumped into the Lee guy who would become the lead actor, Samuel Dunning, and was like, he is the one. <laughs> So you sort of time traveled, like your past self gave you this movie and your present self just discovered it on a napkin, essentially. <laughs> exactly. Normally all my past self gives me is bruises, hangovers, and unexplained bills. So it was a nice change. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it what on Amazon? <laughs> um, so that sounds like a very, uh, that's a very like hitchhiker's guide to the the galaxy origin story um another thing i love i know it's a great book <laughs> um a great series okay you said you met samuel dunning at another festival yes this was the they've changed the name like three times i think they're now called the cubism festival okay. like all about spaceships and stuff like that okay uh he and i both had shorts in the same screening block they invited the people to come up and talk to the audience all 12 of them I think there were as many people being interviewed as were in the audience. <laughs> Sam and I just happened to be sitting next to each other and sort of hit it off. It was funny because when we did the feature a few years later, uh, Sam, because that whole thing was filmed, was posting pictures of the first five minutes we had ever met before we knew we were going to become friends because he still had the photos. Nice. That's it's hilarious because Sam is this good-looking, smart, charming actor who's talking to the audience and just loving it. And you could just see me hunched forward, <laughs> giving him this aggressive side eye the entire way through. Just the whole, you're upstaging me. I don't like that. Sit down. Sit down. So tell us, okay, so Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox, it's being made as a feature. Uh, or it has been made as a feature, and you're, it has you're been about made. to start post-production? We're getting into the next phase of post-production. Right. We okay. finished the edit, and now we got to go into the wall-to-wall effects. Uh, I'd like to say it got picked up for a feature, but that's not quite how it went down. Okay. I was getting ready to do a different feature film that was going to be of a much higher budget. We had already put together the crew. We'd put together a lot of the shooting locations. We were within a month of rolling camera. And then it turned out that, shocking news, a lot of Hollywood financiers can be criminals. And mm. they weren't doing jack. So I can't name names at the moment, but they kind of bailed on us. So we were kind of stuck. It's like we've got all this stuff ready to go right now. So I decided to pool a lot of my own resources and just do a feature myself. But rather than doing it on an iPhone or something like that, make it a full Seven Rain Circus production. Mm but would still need to be a much smaller scale thing. And because I had to put this project together so fast, I looked at Tim Travers, which had done so well on the festival circuit, that I realized, all right, this is as close to market testing as I'm ever going to get. So I called up Sam, uh, just kind of brainstormed thoughts for a little bit on what we would do with this character if we were to expand it out into a full feature. 
because the original short was never meant as a proof of concept. It was a one and done beginning, we've done it, move on. And after a lot of discussion, we figured out what we would want this story to be. And two months later, we rolled camera. That's exciting. I mean, there is something, yes. as, as disappointed it is to have a project fall through, there's definitely, I totally understand that energy that you have to just re-channel. Uh, and there's something exciting yeah. about that, having to, like, taking it completely on yourselves and then putting something uh, together from past work and then coming up with new ideas. I mean, how did, how did, because uh, even as we watch the short film, it feels very tight. It feels like, yep, this is it. So, you know, to make that into a feature, you're obviously going to have to expand the, the lore of this world quite a bit. How was that process of, of building that out? Well, for that, it actually came down to something really simple. We didn't really expand the lore. We expanded the character. The original okay. short, Tim Travers, the character, aggressively has no arc. <laughs> the whole joke of the end of that film is in spite of achieving literal godhood, spoilers for the short film, not the feature, is that he's not changed even remotely mm -hmm. by the end. He picks up exactly where he's left off. And the biggest change to the feature was giving him a real character arc and figuring out what this story needs to be about. And we landed on a couple of metaphors that became very clear to us. If you take the amount of times he spends killing his younger self in the short, literally, it's a fairly on-the-nose metaphor for self-harm. Mm. And the story becomes about self-love. Okay. And given all the duplicates, we take that self-love very literally. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you listening at home, his eyebrows went way up when he said <laughs> literally. <laughs> so uh, give us a, just for, for everyone listening, give us a, just a brief like breakdown of the, uh, the story. Um, or at least the, the log line, you know, the, the pitch. What is The story for Tim Travers, both the short and the feature, is about the classic thought experiment, the time traveler's paradox, in which a time traveler creates a time machine that allows them to go backward only one minute in time. They use that one minute to kill their younger self. Now you have a man who cannot exist, but somehow does. That is the paradox. Paradoxes are impossible. And the premise of the film is to let the impossible happen and then figure out how the impossible is possible. There's three major ways that it could be plausible, and the film explores them. And the idea behind that is we get into the mindset of a guy this, this self-hating that he would do this level of violence to himself repeatedly mm -hmm. and often hilariously and really getting into the headspace of that person. How far is he willing to push it? How much of the refabric of reality itself is he willing to shatter just to prove that? Along the way in the feature, he's going to be butting heads with a radio podcaster, a conspiracy theorist. He's going to deal with the terrorist organization that he stole the plutonium from that powers his machine. The various hitmen they send after him. And he's going to, somewhere in the middle, try to squeeze in a date or two with Felicia Day to see if he could figure out if he's even capable of connecting with another human being. <laughs> these all sound, I mean, we've seen the short <laughs> film and these all sound like great changes to us. So um, that's great. That's really fun. 
a lot of it really is just filling out gaps from yeah. the short film, explaining where how he powers the machine in the first place, mm -hmm. and expanding the world around him and the world that it takes place in. The film takes place in what I like to call post-apocalypse light, where it's not a post-apocalypse, it's more just extreme societal entropy. Okay. So when we see the outsides of his lab, when we see the world Tim lives in, everything is broken, everything's in decay, not from nuclear apocalypse or zombies or anything like that, but from a lack of infrastructure. The stuff we're already seeing in a lot of cities in America taken to an extreme. And entropy becomes one of the central themes of the film, that everything will, given sufficient time, break down to its most fundamental parts and lose its information. Did you find it difficult at all to, I guess, make it so that your audience would be able to digest all of that stuff? Because there's a lot of information that has to be gotten across in a very short amount of time. Absolutely. And the method we used in the short, we ended up copying almost verbatim for the feature okay. because it works so well there, but expanded a little bit more. So we had a better runtime to work with. Mm -hmm. Basically, we took our inspiration from video games. The first third of both the short film and, in this case, the first 15, 20 minutes of the feature are a tutorial level. The reason we see the Tim Trapper's character repeatedly killing himself in various different ways is, one, because it's really funny. Mm -hmm. Two, <laughs> we're laying down the ground rules for how this works so that we can understand his confusion about the things that don't work. So a lot of the reason it repeats itself a lot in those first couple of minutes really is a video game style. This is the tutorial level. We need this stuff. We have because for the audience to follow anything that's going to happen after this, we've got to make it clear. And in the feature, because there's so much more stuff going on, we occasionally have to revisit that tutorial level just to remind people of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And. And the big change there with the feature is while the first two thirds are very rooted in that science mindset, for reasons that I won't give away now, by the time we get to the last third of the film, it's, it's very deliberately goes completely off the rails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did appreciate so, every I, time uh, a version of Tim would realize just too late they were just about to get killed. <laughs> so, oh, so. God. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, we, we kept the butt shot, by the way, from the short film. That's okay. in the feature, too. So. <laughs> yeah. You have to. So. If, if you're not going to have a dead full bullet up the butt moment, then why be a filmmaker? <laughs> I mean, just. You're like, I'm paying for this. This is in there. <laughs> Movies should Roll be it. fun. And my, and my feeling is like Tim Travers, especially with both short and the feature, can really flirt with pretentious given how heady some of the ideas are and how deep into the weeds of scientific techno babble for the 2% of the audience who actually really understands the babble it is. So my feeling is the very least I can do if I'm going to be this self-indulgent as a storyteller is make it as much fun and entertaining as possible. My hope at the end of the feature film is even if you didn't understand one word what was coming out of it, you're still laughing your ass off beginning to end. That's what matters to me as a storyteller, because then I can explore these ideas that are so fun and interesting to me, but I can do it in a way that the audience can have a blast with it. Yeah, that sounds great. So yeah. that, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the goal, at least. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a test screening coming up in a few weeks, so fingers crossed there's a lot of laughing. <laughs>
I, I can promise you this. Afterwards, one way or the other, I will be drinking. Hey, there you go. And maybe you'll stumble into your next uh, your next idea for a film. Um, and then it's a cycle. Like it's a, a cycle. Cycle. <laughs> cycle. Yeah. It's a horrible cycle. Yeah. Cycle of creative abuse. There you go. Uh, so we all we all have friends who are into particle physics, but it sounds like your friends are maybe more into it than ours. <laughs> a, um, a little bit. I'm just curious, like, it, so is it sounds like you and maybe just like your inner circle are very into science just as a whole, and you like to explore it in films. Is that something that uh, were you ever interested in just being like I guess in a scientific career in any way? I was late to the game on science, and and it's really not my inner circle. It's more a side circle. It's like okay. in film, those of us who are really into education and science, we sort of find each other just because of our similar interests. Another mm-hmm. great science filmmaker is Jesse Hendricks, who does the uh, Chemical A Day in May video series on YouTube. She does a lot of the educational stuff for Getty. And in addition to being old friends, we both are folks who are just interested in this sort of stuff. So we end up talking about these things together. Same for my friends who work in particles, stuff like that. Because when I wanted to do a short film about the Mars Spirit Rover, it just put me into a lot of contact with various folks from NASA and JPL. And we just sort of started talking. I think because it's so niche within film, the folks of us who aren't even trying to do documentaries, but we just like to do fiction that's hard science. Mm-hmm. You just sort of keep bumping into each other because, oh, you understand the Penrose effect? Let's <laughs> talk. And uh, as far as me getting to science, I was super late to the game. I was already out of college. I was doing a web series called The Adventures of Chad McPerrinkle, which was a sci-fi comedy in the Hitchhiker's Guide vein. Mm-hmm that had no scientific knowledge whatsoever. I had barely taken any science classes at all in my formal education. But when I was doing the web series, I wanted to use a bunch of actual space photos. So I just started download going through everything Hubble had ever photographed. And I became fascinated by these images. And then I started just picking a podcast after podcast, astrophysics books. Eventually, when I moved down to LA, I started auditing uh, physics class, uh, particle and astronomy classes at USC in UCLA, just getting in on classes. And I fell in love with this stuff. The deeper you read on it, the crazier it gets. point where it's hard to figure out how to make narratives about it. Because how do you even put a human into those scenarios? Mm. And I was very late. I, I was very late to the game in my stud love of science. Well, that's really cool, though. I mean, that's, I don't know, not not everyone would go to those links to research the subject matter for the work that they're doing. I mean, auditing classes, things like that. That's mm. that's a lot of your own time and, and work to get out and do that. That's pretty neat. It's cool. Well, you, you always have time when you're unemployed. Well, okay. <laughs> Professionally, that is the great gift. Movies. We we don't know anything That's about the great that. Gift. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> that is the great gift of being a struggling filmmaker. You're never lacking for time. There you go. <laughs> so, what about this experience of translating Tim Travers and the Time Traveler's Paradox from a short film into a feature? I guess what about this experience has changed you in any way? One week directing an actual feature with a real crew is better than all of film school combined. Mm. Hell, it's better than the last 10 years of my career doing shorts, working on other people's projects. It is a day and night knowledge difference. Mm. And that information experience, I just want to apply forward as soon as I can. The, the thing that it really taught me about myself was 
I've spent my whole life wanting to do this one thing, getting to do a feature film. And with all love and affection in the world to YouTube stuff and things in your iPhone, something where it's a full crew doing the kind of stuff that you can only do with an actual feature film budget behind you. I spent years building up to that moment and finally getting to do it was the hardest and most exhausting, stressful, anxiety-inducing experience of my life. Like you'd wake up reoccurring nightmares in the middle of the night about, oh God, the thing that I forget in the morning, we don't have this scene. And because it is so costly, knowing you're never more than one day away from being ruined. Because if you can't get those scenes that day, you're not going to get them at all. And then you don't have a finished film. And knowing you're never more than 24 hours away from that level of, of complete financial implosion. And then coming to the end of all that and realizing, oh, God, I want to do it again. I want to do it again. <laughs> It's like I, I get how people can have PTSD coming out of wars, but want to get back in as quickly as humanly possible. It's like, <laughs> I want back. I want back so badly. That hit of adrenaline. Oh, yeah. Maybe I've got too much in common with uh, Tim Travers and his self-destructive <laughs> tendencies. Uh, speaking Maybe of there's that. there's a note of autobiography there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> speaking of that, uh, if you were capable of time travel, uh, would you go back in uh, a minute and, and kill yourself to see what happens? No. Okay, all right. <laughs> I would invite a, I'd invite a friend over kill them. Ah, there you go. Okay, perfect. Because, you know, I just, I want to see what would happen. <laughs> you actually had a one minute, it's a legit fascinating question. What would happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, you're so. still here. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, maybe I'd be less malicious and, like, try it with uh, a rat or something. <laughs> Except I really like rats. They're very cute. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just thinking of a, a particular scene. We work scene our way this. up to murder. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Work our way up there, yeah. A vase. A vase. A vase I, would yeah. just shoot, I would just shoot a vase <laughs> while holding that vase. Theoretically, the vase should no longer exist. I can threaten the destruction of the universe without shooting myself in the face. <laughs> There you go. If only Tim Travers had known that. Uh, like, honestly, it's probably a borderline legit plot hole of the film that he has so many other ways no, no, he no. could test this theory that don't involve fucking himself. Tim Travers is so narcissistic that it I don't think it ever even occurred to him that he could do anything other than just shoot his past self. <laughs> so it makes perfect sense. It's not sense. a time traveler paradox <laughs> if it's a time object paradox. Yeah. Exactly. I... I, the, so yes and no. I would absolutely test the theory, but I would do it in a way that doesn't involve risking my life. <laughs> At least not in an immediately applicable way. Uh -huh. <laughs> I just want to go back to make sure I had Bitcoin when it was like a dollar. Can you imagine? The problem is, though, it's only a one-minute time machine. There's yeah, very yeah. few that, things yeah. you could do with only one minute. <laughs> So it's got very limited application. <laughs> Rob a bank and you're counting down 60 seconds and you're like, hurry, hurry, hurry. <laughs> I did appreciate, I thought the production design in the short was pretty great. I did appreciate that the time machine had an, a classic exit sign uh, <laughs> on one side, just so that you didn't forget which end was which. That's literally what that was born of, by the way. That was something that was not even in the original script. The, prop, the, the set designer, Vincent Felix, pointed out that it might be hard to tell which side of the machine you're looking at because it's a big, giant, black, obelisk, monolith thing. Uh -huh. 
It's like, oh, yeah, we should probably put something to distinguish it. And we all loved it so much that when we did the feature, we got a much bigger uh, 1930. So now it's a 1930s exit sign like you'd find on a trolley. Oh, good. But it reads better at a distance. That's perfect. I, I'll be honest. When I first saw it, I, it was like out of focus in the background. And I thought, is there an exit sign on this <laughs> machine? Like, is that supposed to be there? And then I'm like, oh, no, it's supposed to be there. And it's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> so. it, it's got very much a, a DIY effects design. Uh-huh, yeah. so we wanted everything in the world for the short film. And then we tripled down on this in the feature. That have We didn't want things to have a too clean quality. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of feet, every movie I see right now tends to have this almost unreal level of sharpness. Mm-hmm. And everything on the indie scene seems trying to imitate that look as much as possible. <laughs> so we pushed the other way with it, where we wanted everything to have a traditional film grain look, heavy use of haze on sets. So light has a way of bleeding around things. There's a layer of dust and dirt and all the objects. We wanted everything... Anything that I was not absolutely forced to CG because it was just beyond what we could conceivably build at our budget, but wanted to be a real physical, practical prop that the character could interact with. Even in the short, I thought it made a big difference just having the object of the time machine be a real thing in the room mm-hmm. as opposed to something we were matting in. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, anything that your actors can have to interact with just makes it all that more real. Oh, he still couldn't interact with it. That thing is so flimsy. If you leaned up, that your hand could go through it. <laughs> <laughs> he, could, he could pretend. He could pretend like it. You know, that's their job, right? Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but that thing was such a monstrosity to build. Uh, nearly killed them trying to build that thing in only three weeks. Oh, jeez. On the production. And then a year later, I remember calling up the same guy. It's like, hey, you remember that time machine prop that nearly killed you to build? <laughs> I kind of need you to build it a second time. But better. This time, can we make it even bigger and have more detail on it? But better and cheaper. He had two months. He had had two months the second time around, so that did help. That's good. Let's let's jump into – let's jump over to your Cheesecake movie. Excellent. Um, I want to talk about – which we – we leaked a little bit earlier. <laughs> Why don't you tell us about about your cheesecake film? I love Men in Black. It is a rare combination. Of, I mean, it's one of those films where it almost feeds the point to talk about why it's good mm-hmm. because it falls into that category of just being self-evidently good. Every joke lands. Every joke is unbelievably smart. It has a ton of emotion and heart to it. It is exciting and action-packed. The effects are great. There's not a bad beat in the film. And it's a wonderful use of practical effects with CG. And all the pieces came together. And part of what has made me grow to love that film the more time that goes on is because of what a flash-in-the-pan moment it was. They have tried three times (laughs) to recapture the magic of that one film and they have failed all three times. Mm-hmm. The second film was a train wreck. The third was actually pretty passable. And the fourth one was a giant dumpster fire of bad <laughs> ideas. <laughs> and the amazing part is that with the exception of the fourth one, it's the same creative team, top to bottom. This wasn't mm-hmm. people coming in with the exception of the fourth and disrespecting the material. This was the same people, the same very talented and creative people 
coming back with a lot of heart and a lot of passion, and they were never able to make it land twice. And I do genuinely wonder if part of that reason is because it was so different. There was nothing like Men in Black as a story before that film came out. And even though there's been a lot of imitators, including its own sequels, like, but also straight up imitators like the RIPD, mm-hmm. there's never been anything before or since quite like it. And I'm not saying it's like a, you know, a everything all at once, super abstract telling. But when you think about it, that narrative and that story, where have we seen that since then? Outside of those imitators, at least is there a good example of an imitator since then? And there is something amazing to me about that, because going back to the everything everywhere all at once comparison, part of what makes that film amazing is how wild and weird it is. Whereas Men in Black isn't that wild. It isn't that weird. In many respects, it's very straightforward from the things that make it good. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's part of what makes it a marvel, purely because you watch this and it's like, how does this hold up so well mm-hmm. on every level? So to me, it's that rare experience of kind of a miracle movie where everything is just right. Like, dare I say, perfect cheesecake. <laughs> You know, some of the one of the reasons why I think maybe that is is just when it was made. Uh, so it came yeah. out in '97. The '90s are an interesting yeah. time for movies, and so and it, it feels like it was a good five years earlier than it had any right to be. You know, like lots of CGI starting to be present in films. Um, so you've got a lot of uh, you know the bug and all that stuff in there and several of the aliens and they really knew how to use the cg yeah because it was far but it was well before the age when cg could do anything mm-hmm. but they but it also was not so enamored of cg that they have like these days there's so many from that era that cg that has mm-hmm. an age great because people were so enamored of it it is not enamored of its cg when it's there it's really good but it's very well balanced with practical effects. A lot of what they're doing is puppets, but careful compositing mm-hmm. in the CG elements. A lot of it is a very creatively restrained film on the visual side. Yeah. Focusing on what they can do right and really effectively. Even just the choice to have the bug in disguise for most of the movie, <laughs> which I understand the, you know, the the practicalities of it within the structure of the story, but like, that character is one of the best parts of the movie for me. I, I love every time he's on screen. It's got this like Sam Raimi vibe yeah. of um, the, you know, the zombie like walking around, pulling his skin back, like all this stuff that's hilarious. Yeah. Vincent you know, D'Onofrio before anybody knew who he was. Yes. Just yeah, that's turning really, in that's a crazy. banger of a performance. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, like you said, I, you know, it's Vincent D'Onofrio in your head. And then like he's yelling at a wife and then walks out to his truck. And it's like, that's Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> and the other great joy of that character, and this is one of the things that goes back to when you can do anything, it stops you from having restraint. And a lot of the time, that is not a creative boon. The CG of the bug at the end actually holds up pretty well, mm-hmm. I think. But they crammed all of their CG budget into that one scene. And because his performance is so good and they keep teasing pieces of what's under the dead writhing skin, Mm -hmm. they build the hell out of that villain. When he finally rips off his skin and you see him in full bug form, it's a moment. It's a fuck yeah moment Mm -hmm. of screen watching because they have taken their sweet time 
building to that. And when it finally gets there, it, it's earned. It's not the modern trend we get now of random character turns into a monster in the last five minutes, because here they build and build so well to that. You are dreading what's under the skin all mm -hmm. through that film. And they let it be grody and gross, where you get the sense that there's things writhing beneath mm -hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, every time his sleeves just drop cockroaches out. Uh, which his, is, his mouth is when he beautiful. gets in the cab with her and uh -huh. he screams at her. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, it's great. Um, Although I still have questions about how he fit that much bug into one Vince at the yeah. real. <laughs> <laughs> no, but let's not nitpick. He was, yeah, he was yeah. tripled up in some spots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I was a kid, when this movie came out, my parents rented it from Blockbuster. Yeah. And I was not allowed to watch this movie. So my parents were watching it at night and I snuck out of my room because <laughs> I knew they were watching something that I wanted to see. And uh, so I like stood in the hallway and I'm like looking through the kitchen into the living room and I can see that they're watching stuff. And I can, I woke up because my dad was just laughing, like just hysterically. <laughs> and I saw that they were like watching a particular scene and then rewinding it and watching it again and then <laughs> rewinding it and watching it and just doing this over and over again, which is like something like my brothers and I would do as kids because it's, you know, we're kids and it's the same thing over and over. It's funny, but I would never see my parents do this. So I knew that it had to be something hilarious. I must have laughed or something, and it let it let them know that I was in there. And I thought, oh, gosh, I'm in trouble. But I think my dad was in such a good mood. He was like, you got to see this. And he just, like, invited me in. And it's the scene where he takes over the man's body initially, and he goes back into the house, and his wife is pouring him sugar water. And he she's like, your skin's, like, you know, falling off your bones your or whatever. hanging off your bones. Yeah. And um, he's like, oh. And he pulls his face back, and he's like, is that better? <laughs> my dad thought that was the funniest thing he had ever seen in his life and was rolling on the floor laughing. And so, I mean, as a kid, I was just like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like, I'm one, I'm getting to watch a movie I'm not supposed to watch, but also this is hilarious. So, some good memories for that. <laughs> and also, way to, date, way to date yourself with the choice of words, he would rewind. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what it was. So, I mean, a blockbuster, rewind, all that. So. <laughs> We had what was yeah. what was at the time called a VCR <laughs> and a tape. <laughs> I miss VCRs; they were great. I still have one. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to find more. They're like, I'm waiting for the vintage New Line VCRs to come out. Like they came out with record players and everything else. Sooner or later, somebody's got to start making new VCRs for the collectors. You know, they're making a comeback. I've I've seen <laughs> I've seen several uh, Airbnbs that just have like VHS collections and it's like a little, you know, just a thing, well, a little um Doesn't a tape lose its magnetism over time? Yeah, I don't know. I mean well, I, would ar I would argue they need to make a comeback because there's so many movies that were never ruled. There's so many things that were only ever stored on mm. VHS. So we need yeah. to we need to archive it. So we need we need VCRs for the collector's crowd. <laughs> we'll add that on at the end when we talk about uh, drugs. So we'll just, just all of our Quick starters. VCRs. Somebody get on VCRs. that. What else? You guys were talking a while back about Men in Black coming out in the 90s. Mm -hmm. I miss movies in the 90s a lot. As good as stuff is right now, one of the, the 90s was kind of a golden age of blockbusters doing weird stuff. Mm -hmm. There was no one thing. Thing that was only coming out these days things are dominated by superhero films and some folks consider that the greatest thing in the world and other folks consider it a cinema apocalypse <laughs> <laughs> the 
I, I fall in the middle ground because if a superhero movie is good, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. I'm just sad that that's the only type of blockbuster film we seem to see anymore. So I am, and I miss when you get these random weird stuff. That's the era that Men in Black was born from, mm-hmm. that The Matrix was born from. Hell, Waterworld, yeah. for all of its disastrousness, was still this kind of creative big swing you would never see mm-hmm. these days. And I miss that. Yeah, there's just a boldness to the films that came out in that decade. Mm-hmm. that you're right you don't see as often there's not as many bets taken on films like that and there's hollywood something... where's my water world reboot right <laughs> <laughs> see i don't know if we want that i don't, I don't know if that's because like, like you know the magic that even as bad as that movie is there's a magic there that's just you just can't and that's maybe why none of the men in black sequels have really worked is because i mean men in black 2 was only made a few years later but it was after, you know, Y2K changed us, really, is what, what happened. And so, uh, <laughs> but there's I haven't heard that theory before. <laughs> <laughs> the Y2K theory of film. Yeah, you know, everything <laughs> changed after, after Y2K. Um, we had to get rid of all those old computers. <laughs> it's yeah. the old computers, that's yeah. what it was. It was the secret, secret sauce. <laughs> but we, there's just something about, you know, we were talking recently about the, the Nick Cage movie, um, where he plays himself, uh, the unbearable weight of, of massive talent, and how we were, we we're like, man, it, it it's a funny idea. Like on paper, it sounds great, uh, but then in the execution, it just doesn't quite nail what it is like to watch a Nick Cage movie. When people think of like a Nick Cage movie, they think of a lot of stuff that came out in the '80s and in the '90s, mm-hmm. and there's this like big boldness, like brashness to them. That modern oh, movies yeah. just don't have, and, th- and that isn't to say that like there are all modern movies are terrible, but there's just something when you're trying to capture something that that was that did well, like Men in Black in the '90s. There's a different energy you got to tap into that we just don't really know how to tap into anymore. Um, One of the uh, there are certain films which don't get me wrong are great films, but I am convinced a lot of the reason they will land so hard, like uh, we'll take Everything Everywhere All at Once, for mm-hmm. example, and I'm convinced a part of it isn't just that it's a good film, it's that it is swinging from the hip in such a big way. Mm-hmm. To the point where even the elements that if you want to dig into it that kind of don't work in that film, and if you dig in, don't make the slightest bit of sense, you kind of just don't care because it's so much fun to see something so willing to be different. Yeah. Another great example is something like a Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. which is actually a very, very simple film plot-wise, but it is willing to be aggressive in a way you just don't see. And I think that lands so hard. And I think a lot of films pick up a lot of energy just by their willingness to be so themselves Mm -hmm. without apology. But that's risky, because the more themselves a film is, the more likely you are to land in a spot where, wow, this is unwatchable to anybody but the filmmaker. (laughs) It requires... does truly require risk to do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that is something that you don't see as much anymore. Um, we're sounding old now, talking <laughs> like, well, back in our day, the movies Back in the 90s. But uh, yeah, not to say that all the movies in the 90s were great, because they weren't. But there is something about that. That's, <laughs> but that's right. what There's made a, them great. That's what <laughs> well, also the, like, I actually have a theory about the old movies are always better, because I remember uh-huh. hearing this from my parents, stuff like that. Uh-huh. I think movies are actually always pretty consistently awesome, but -hmm. it's always going to look better in hindsight, not because of nostalgia, but because we forget the bad stuff. Yeah. 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 So it's like, you gotta remember 
hundreds of thousands of movies come out in a given decade, probably a given year now with mm -hmm. how much stuff is made. And we forget the 99.9% .9 that were garbage. So with the only thing you remember from the 90s are your men in blacks, your matrixes, your dark cities. Yeah, it's gonna look fantastic mm -hmm. because those were all fantastic movies. But we also forget about, you know, our spawns. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> hey, Michael Jalil White did what he could with that character, okay? And John but Leguizamo in it was actually pretty fun. But yeah. Well, oh, he's great. There's always great stuff in bad <laughs> movies. But I think that's part of the reason people always think movies were better in a given decade. It's because they're only remembering the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I mean, take the year right now. We're going to talk about Matt. We're going to talk about the 20, this era as the Mad Max year. Fury Roads, um, you're everything everywhere all at once, the good Marvel movies, and we're going to forget the 50 million bad things that mm -hmm. came out in our own decade. I mean, we already have. So I think it, it, so it's already. Yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten some of the things well, we've the, done podcasts about. <laughs> well, the modern era's really bad attention span does help speed that up. I feel like we're less nostalgic these days for our own recent past. Because we have no memory spans anymore. <laughs> well, there's too much. There's there's much more coming, like at you all the time now. Mm -hmm. so. Stuff's got to hit hard to stay with you. Yeah, it's it's so easy to just let it go as this new thing's barreling down at you. You're looking at ten thousand things and remembering one of them now, as opposed to a hundred things coming in remembering five of them. It's funny when you were talking about your guys' cheesecake question, like I always go to Men in Black because even though I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made by any extent of measure, I always go back to what a perfect little gem it feels like for what it's trying to be. Mm -hmm. But when I was thinking about that question, I mean, you guys had emailed me about that beforehand. Sometimes it's very hard just to look back at the previous year because there is so much good stuff coming out at a given time. Mm -hmm. Like films that stay with me recently right now are still the Lighthouse, Vikings, uh, or Northmen, same director, yeah. Green Knight. And it's it's actually hard to remember even a year ago, even though there were great movies just a year ago. Mm -hmm. Even looking back since when we've started the podcast, it's like, that movie, that movie, that mm -hmm. movie. It's like, you know, like 20 really good ones and it's like those were in a year yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yeah it is uh, as, as much as i'm nostalgic for i am nostalgic for elements of the 90s because of the creative focus and the ability to take risks but these days it's fair to say we're in kind of a golden age of good content coming out and mm -hmm. from lots of good content coming out in fact the things that kind of scare me right now is i think the market is extremely oversaturated mm. And what we're seeing with a lot of streaming services cutting back on their amount of work, stuff like that, is they're realizing that it's oversaturated. Mm -hmm. There's just too much money being spent on too many different things, which is great news for little guys like me, but bad news for the health of the art form. Yeah. Every week I'm asked if I've watched this thing or if I'm caught up on this show. And I'm like, <laughs> I just do not have the time I don't know to be in all of that. Because I the shows that the shows and movies that I'm already watching are 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 wonderful. So it's like, okay, I can maybe squeeze in a little bit more time. Gotta sacrifice time with the family to go do that. But hey, you know what? Well it helps if you're of... single. I imagine being unemployed <laughs> would help. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yes, yes, it it both help. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. I have so much more time to watch stuff. <laughs> I have I have a strategy I've been using basically my entire adult life uh, when it comes to that. And I'm going to make a very unpopular opinion right here. I don't watch dramatic television <gasps> until it's canceled. 
Oh, Won't watch until it until it's canceled. off the air. Okay, yeah. I, I have a reason. It's too much of a time investment. Mm-hmm. A movie by the nature of the art form gives me a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. A book by the nature of the art form gives me a beginning, a middle, and an end. TV shows, even the very best ones, because of how the corporate incentive on it works, oftentimes you won't get an ending at all, or they'll drag it out too long and ruin the thing you loved. Because we're talking, if a show runs more than five seasons, a hundred hours of your life, Mm -hmm. easy to invest in something like that. I think that it had the trouble to give it ending is kind of a bare minimum requirement. So I will watch shows after they have gone off the air. And I know just based on reviews or cultural feedback that it was still worth it. Even if people hated how it ended, like your Game of Thrones, stuff like that. I don't know anyone who even that after that show ended that wouldn't still say it was absolutely worth the ride. Mm-hmm. And it was. And I went back and enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah. But it, it saves a lot of time. It's I'll watch it when it's idea. done. Yeah, and you don't I imagine you don't get your hopes up like we all did before season eight comes out, you know? <laughs> I've, You're just like, I've oh, already been hearing the backlash from the sides. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. You don't hate it as much as we do. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I get to the, I talked about this on another podcast I was on the other day. I'll even defend the last season as just a bad creative choice from a production standpoint, mm-hmm. from a writing standpoint, all the evidence is there. There's nothing from a story structure standpoint wrong with the last season. If anything, they've telegraphed it from a long time getting there. The problem is that after dragging some books over multiple seasons, they crammed what should have been three books into one season, and it's aggressively rushed. Mm-hmm. The creative decisions don't feel earned because they didn't give the audience time to get there. But from a pure narrative standpoint, it's fine. It's far from the most bad ending in TV history. I'm old enough to still be angry about what happened to Alf. Oh, remember the canonical, <laughs> <laughs> the canonical ending of Alf is the government captures and kills him. That's the canonical spoilers on a 30-year-old show. But they thought they were going to – see, this is what I mean about bad endings. They thought they were going to get another season, so they did a cliffhanger where the government captures him with the intention of dissecting him, and then they didn't get another season. That's the end of Al. Oh, my God. Well, I guess he got dissected or whatever. <laughs> we'll see you later, buddy. See you exactly they did a reunion like five years later or something where they don't even acknowledge it so in my head canon that's just a different elf in the reunion <laughs> other elf is you know in a jar somewhere that's beautiful <laughs> it would have been hilarious so, if they had a reunion without him it's without. like he died <laughs> oh i would love that actually that would be hilarious yeah so to all of you angry at the ending of game of thrones you don't know how good you've got. It's like, okay, they, they definitely dropped the ball and they overly brushed it, but at least you actually get a nautical ending that ties up the characters. Yeah. <laughs> Not just like a fade to black in season seven. It's like, I guess they all died. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they got dissected by the government. Yeah. Season seven, and everybody died. <laughs> <laughs> One type Bill cards. The end. I hate this show. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That I mean, that is a good way to to go about watching a show. I think there's definitely some shows that yeah. I jumped in on the first season and then they got canceled second season, 
you know, when I was younger, I didn't understand all that stuff. And I'd be watching the show and be like, man, they're really ramping things up right now. <laughs> like they took their time in the first season with the mystery. But uh, <laughs> this season's just like, here's an answer. Here's an answer. Here's an answer. <laughs> like, why are we going so fast? Oh, it's over. Oh, OK, I see. All season right. two, yeah, episode like, four. They found out they had three episodes <laughs> to wrap it all up. So they had to go for broke. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, you just look over at what's happening at Netflix and HBO, where it feels like they're taking all their favorite shows outside the barn. No, they're sending them to a farm exactly. upstate. They'll be fine. Yeah. Did you like Inside Job? Inside Job's doing fine. It's on a farm. <laughs> it gets to run out and play with the other shows every day. Yeah. Look, you can go to this other website and write your own ending. <laughs> we'll oh give you gosh. all the tools for a word processor. Do whatever you want. Yeah, I think that's going to be the new use of ChatGBT. It's write me an ending for a show that got canceled. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> G- give me an ending. That's th- so depressing. <laughs> I, I think that I think that really legitimately is the future, like the future of content. In sixty years, I'm watching my own made up shows, and you're watching your own made up shows, and they have nothing to do with each other. Oh my gosh! Like, because it'll be it'll be AI writing it, and then like making it in 10 seconds and then showing it to you you that's the weird thing though that is something everyone talks about i am one of the few people who's not overly intimidated by ai at least as far as my industry is concerned Mm -hmm. because the fundamental nature of ai is it has to be an aggregate of pre-existing ideas Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i'm sure there will be shows like that and i'm sure people are going to use ai as a tool But at least for me, and I'd like to think the majority of the population, the things that we love most are the things that are capable of surprising us, Mm -hmm. capable of doing something new. And anything that technology that's built on aggregate fundamentally can't surprise you because it's going to follow the cliche. I think people will hate it, but I think that's the future of content. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure people, again, again, I'm sure some folks are going to use it, but I don't feel overly threatened. Where I think we're going to see a lot of it is actually what you're talking about as a sort of replacement for fan fiction, where a lot of fan fiction is people want to see a version of something, so they're not trying to be surprised. They want to see a very specific thing, and this allows it to be done for them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where I think it might be very interesting. And you, and you preempt the the movie AI bot with, I want a movie starring Tom Hanks, Nicole Kidman. I want them to do this, and I want the ending to be this. And then it goes, okay. Yeah, that I think we'll see a lot of. Yeah. yeah. We've actually talked a lot about AI a few times on the podcast before and I think we're we're in the in the same boat as you as far as like how threatening it is to, to creators and people who are you know artists and everything just because it is lacking in originality yeah, and only copies yeah and soul like it just doesn't have any spirit to it or any passion and and um and it's and it can't Draw fingers. Yeah. Well, well, the thing that I find interesting about AI that excites me, it's one more tool. So I want to see, like, there's a podcast uh, that's very interesting right now where it's a guy interviewing people who have long died. Mm. And what he does is he uses the AI based on writings from that people. So I do think there is a place for AI in the creative world. We're still figuring out what that is, and we're still figuring out the ethics Mm. of how to use it. Like, I think it could be a phenomenally good brainstorming tool. I've been toying with it myself. 
And if only because I'll try to give it a prompt and I'll be so aggressively disappointed by the prompt <laughs> that it will give me an idea for how to do something better. Although that's the petty part of me that wants to prove I'm better than the machine. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but there is a place for this. But there is a place for AI, and I'm really excited to see what happens with it. I do, and I do think there's a lot of concern about AI in terms of people's jobs, stuff like that. I'm just not really worried about it in the creative world because mm -hmm. of that soulless nature that you bring up. Yeah. I do think there are very wide societal ramifications that, while they may not apply to me personally, are deeply concerning. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to the... Uh, when someone pulls up this podcast 15 years from now, <laughs> after I've been put out of work by AI, saying, ah, look at the hubris of this idiot. The hubris of man. No, no, we AI, we AI cut to black gonna, and say 20 years later. AI is going <laughs> to listen yeah. to this and then send the AI cops out to get us. Oh, gosh. Cause we, cause we oh yeah, it. or it's like I'm living in a, I'm yeah, living in you know a hobble somewhere as the AI version of myself is winning awards because <laughs> it's more creative than me, and it's like remember that time you didn't feel threatened? How do you feel now? I mean, this sounds like a good a good premise to a, a new film right here, but um, or maybe a really bad one. I'm not sure, but uh, I don't know. I I can already see it right now. Person, although I think Futurama already did that. Robot. Feel my existential crisis for me. <laughs> Express love to my family for me. Yeah, I think I think Futurama already did that film. <laughs> Feel my existential dread for me. Okay, <laughs> that's really good. Great episode. It uh, uh, scary. It's a scary door bit. Yeah. Um, I know this stuff way too well off the top of my head. This, this, these are the things I know instead of things like how to pay bills or taxes. That's <laughs> not important. So, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, if they didn't teach in high school, forget it. You, you got you to gotta make money to worry about taxes. <laughs> yeah, when you can just write checks from yourself to yourself, it's just, you know. You're like, like, you're I, I always have people like, say, like, nope. can I pay taxes like this? <laughs> a lie. Life is going pretty well for me right now these days financially. But I hear a lot of folks always talk about, well, aren't you worried about the tax rate going up on the rich? And it's like, if I get into the income bracket that I'm paying the higher <laughs> tax rate, I keep hopping the champagne corks that I could afford. <laughs> it's like, I would love to get into the income bracket that I'm worried about how to dodge taxes. That is a great problem to have. I'm bankrupt. Why? So I can keep up my money. <laughs> Why? That's one nice thing about the indie world. I spent the better part of my 20s getting paid under the table. So that helped. That was nice. <laughs> Editor, unfortunately, uh... <laughs> unfortunately, when I was being paid under the table, usually it was like a restaurant table that I was in, uh, that I was a server at. Hey, you know what? <laughs> I mean, it's respectable. It's who respectable. reports tips anyway? <laughs> Except me, IRS. I always did. So tell me a little bit about uh, about your your past a little bit when it comes to your career in filmmaking. Have you always worked I, in Los Angeles? Have you worked in other states? I know you said you were working uh, only in Washington, only Washington and LA. Okay, uh, I have had a bohemian career of side gigs, but it has always been a point of pride for me that in my adult life, I don't think I've ever gone more than six months working in anything that wasn't film. Like hmm. I think six months was the longest I ever did, and I've subsided basically from the time I was 23 on gigs 
Uh, I got out of college. I worked in Seattle for uh, about a year and a half, got into a web series, did a big one of my own, worked on a few other people's projects, did a lot of editing gigs, moved to LA and fresh off the bus. Like everybody, I did background for several years, but I quite liked it because it freed up. I could control my own work schedule. It kept me paid well. I was able to join the Screen Actors Gig Union. So I would have four to five days a week off in a bad week, but I would make up for it in a day or two on set, which allowed me to start becoming a DP, working on other projects. I definitely had dry spells. I um, one point did construction for about two months. Mm. I worked in like a rehabilitation center for drug adult teens for a few months at one point. But I think if you added together all the time I spent not working at film, it'd be maybe two years over out of the last 15. Hmm. And, and that's always been a point of pride. I would, I've never considered myself, you know, egregiously successful, but by the very low bar of being a gig worker in the arts, that's uh, that's something to be proud of. And then in the last several years, I started moving into much bigger projects. I stopped doing kind of the YouTube shorts and made the shift over to more festival-driven, much higher production value stuff that kind of culminated in Tim Travers, which then switched over into the feature. And now I'm kind of shopping around a few other features right now with my sales agent, uh, securing the rights to a few books that are high profile so that we can get funding arranged in relatively short order and hoping that I can keep working with celebrities because at least so far, the ones I've met are very nice people. That's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been kind of an eclectic all over the map sort of thing. I feel like a lot of this must sound like humble bragging. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you connect? I mean, so the the feature version of Tim Travers has a, a pretty decent cast, at least from on paper. How did you get connected <laughs> with them? And, and um, how did all that come to be? Um, the, uh, ver the very boring way. Okay. I hired a top-tier casting director. Um, many years ago, I met Ronnie Yeskel, who is the casting director on Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and countless other films, although those are the two biggest name drops. I was her unpaid intern okay. for several months, <laughs> and we had a great working relationship. And years later, when I started doing my own projects, she came back and worked for me. She's old-school Hollywood veteran. So for a lot of these celebrities, it was just a matter of just calling them, just literally reaching out, making an offer, sending them the script. You typically submit to several celebrities in a row, tip never more than one at a time, because that's just bad manners. Mm -hmm. uh, and, unless you're Martin Scorchese and you can actually, you know, audition these guys, <laughs> which I am emphatically not Scorchese. Uh, and we just reached, it, it's really boring getting celebrities <laughs> when you're getting to do professional stuff. It's, they like the script. Are you honoring their contract deal terms? That's about, are they available? That's about it. <laughs> the issue with Tim Travers was this came together so fast. In some cases, we had actors who we were closing on the deal terms with 72 hours before they were reporting on set. Wow. So, oh yeah. And our cast, and I'm happy to name drop, by the way, it's Joel <laughs> McHale, Felicia Day, uh, Danny Trejo, and Keith David. I think we cast Felicia maybe two weeks before she came into town for the week and a half that we needed her out there for production. So just that, that was the speed we were going with to the point where we had an entire second cast of backups just in case these folks said no. Man. And a lot of those folks were really good, by the way. In fact, I went out of my way to take my entire backup cast and give them smaller roles within the film 
just so that I could still pay them because they were so good. Nice. We had this wonderful actor uh, named Tony Dupe who does, he's an acting coach and teacher in Washington state. He's been in tons of television shows. He was going to play the role that ultimately went to Danny Trejo, but we were able to still bring him in as a drunken bar patron. And Tony, if you're listening, every line you have when we've been watching it in the edit gets a laugh. Like just every single time the editors and I are dying. So you are wonderful on camera if you're listening, Tony. That's really cool. What was it like directing? Uh, much of the directing is just directing Samuel Dunning, who plays Tim Travers, because okay. it is still, for 50% of the film, one guy playing dozens of different versions of himself. All of which, poor Sam had to learn every conceivable line of multiple different Tims who have to act opposite of each other. And that stuff was straightforward because Sam and I have a great rapport. Sam has a deep trust of me. I've seen firsthand how Sam takes my very mediocre writing and makes it seem clever and like it's actually good. And so that was always the fun days on set. With celebrities, it was a little different because for me, it was intimidating. This is the first time I've worked with people of this level of fame and caliber and frank, and it's intimidating. Mm. Uh, and so for the first couple hours with each one of them, you're kind of finding your footing because you don't know what kind of person they're going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, I was extremely, and I cannot stress this, extremely lucky that all four of those folks that I've mentioned are consummate professionals and just exceedingly nice people. Joel McHale came in the night before, and you could tell he was just having a field day, and we let him go off book for a lot of it. And for me, it was very weird working with Joel for that first couple hours because my very first job in LA, first job fresh off the bus uh, as a background actor was on the Gay Bash episode of Community. <laughs> if you go through that show, you could see little dancing me ah, in nice. the crowd there. <laughs> so my very first real job in film was Joel McHale as my boss, so high up in the pecking order that it could have been fired on a whim if he were that kind of person. He's not, but I could have been. And there are other shows I was on where that was very much the sort of thing you had to be wary of. So then 10 years later to have this guy come out on my set acting for me on my film, that was deeply surreal and probably the most starstruck I was the entire time just because because of my personal connection to Joel in that regard. So for the first hour or so, I was really kind of scared to give him notes because it kind of took me time to work up to it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Felicia was a completely different story because she is just an unbelievably kind and easy to talk to person. And she was doing web series at the same time that I was doing web series mm -hmm. back in the day. The crucial difference being that hers is the most famous web series of all time and mine crashed and burned <laughs> and no one ever heard of it. I'm a big fan of the Reveal. Guild. I used to watch the Guild back when, uh, it's when it first started It's a fantastic out, so. show. Yeah. It's still good. And in spite of the production value, the writing holds up. It is a wonderful show to anyone who, who has somehow made it this long and not seen it. <laughs> She was just easy to work with, uh, no ego to her whatsoever, uh, really got into her character, was having a lot of fun getting to be a foul mouth, really mean character, mm -hmm. which is so against her type. You could tell she was having a field day. And then you had folks like Danny Trejo, who's done this type of character so many times he could do it with his <laughs> eyes closed, and yet he is so compelling on screen. And then you had Keith David, who I, I can't remember 
reveal what character he plays as it would be major spoilers for the feature, but you step into the room with him and you want to talk about gravitas. That is a man whose voice can shake the foundations of the building you're in <laughs> to the point where the first time he, when I meet him, he's speaking very softly. He's this very sweet, gentle man. We get on set, his very first line, I actually visibly, physically stepped back, like, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> I would be terrified to ever have this man angry at me. <laughs> Just from the power of his speaking voice, I think I would break down and cry. <laughs> no, I was very fortunate. And once I, the only issue with directing celebrities I found was getting over my own insecurity with mm -hmm. it. But they were all incredibly nice people. And also, the thing with a lot of famous folks who I've met unrelated to this project, you only ever hear the horror stories, but the horror stories are the overwhelming minority. Mm -hmm. Key factor to what keeps these folks successful is that other filmmakers want to work with them. And people want to work with folks who are fun and easy to work with. The overwhelming majority of famous people are incredibly nice people. Even the ones you've heard horror stories about are probably stories where you caught them on a bad day. Mm-hmm. And any one of us has a bad day. Now imagine that on your bad day, you have people hounding you with cameras. I don't think any of us are, I don't, I challenge most people are going to come off badly in that circumstance eventually. Yeah. yeah. I, I have yelled at a bunch of lighting guys. I will say that. <laughs> wait, wait, what's your story there? No, you, you can't skip that over. Uh, welcome to the Stimson's Need About Movies podcast. Jeremy, tell me about your experience. Or Jeremiah. <laughs> hey, my family guys are Jerry, so you're spot on. Oh, okay. I wasn't joking, by the way. I wanted to hear the rest of the story. <laughs> I'm listening. It was, it was made up. He, he, oh, it was made up. Right. There you go. Yeah. Oh, I see. So, so we caught you in a lie. It was a trap. Your skin's hanging off your bones. Your skin. <laughs> That's what we do with the Stimson Steve podcast. We trap them. <laughs> you thought this was your own podcast. <laughs> oh, no. I want the the I want editor the, has been the, secretly working for me all along. Yeah, I want the the um our little icon our icon to change suddenly. suddenly like, change, yeah. <laughs> it's a picture of my face giving a thumbs up. <laughs> oh, I had a podcast with my best friend several years back, a gentleman named Alex Wolf, who's my good luck charm. I feature him and everything. Much like my web series, it also crashed and burned. I want to stress to everyone out there, by the way, who thinks I'm in a very successful position. It's because I have a list of failures longer <laughs> than most yeah. longer than most people's resumes just work overall. My failure list is very deep at this point. Hey, but that's how you learn. That's how you that's how you get better. So I mean, even you were just saying well, earlier that just like in the position that you were being on a feature that that you learned more in just one day than you felt that you had learned in the past several years. And so failing over and over again, just teaches what not to do for the next one. So, well, more than that, a lot of failure is not one's own fault. A lot of failure is circumstance. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the big things you learn as you get older, um, it's an expression I used to love. The people who succeed are the ones who keep showing up. I think part of what failure teaches you is how to live with it, how to roll with it, like how to, all right, this happened. How am I going to deal with this problem? How am I rolling with the punches? And it's one of the hardest things, especially in the arts where so much of your self-esteem 
has to do with whether or not other people think you're good. And I know all the uh, lifestyle coaches out there want to say other people's opinions don't matter. In entertainment, that is demonstrably wrong. <laughs> other people's opinions absolutely do matter. And when you fail repeatedly over and over, it is very would be irrational not to examine that. At a certain point, everybody who's working in the arts has to be asking themselves, is this bad luck? Have I not had the right opportunity yet? Have I just not had the right chance to show it? Or am I really not cut out for this? Am I really not as talented as my mom said I am? And that is an existential dread that plagues every single working artist I know out there. And it's a good question, and it's not one that has an easy answer, because it could truly be you've just had extraordinarily bad luck. I don't want to discourage anybody who's failed from keep trying. You should. But that's a question that plagues all of us. Uh, every celebrity I've met deals with that same question. So you you jokingly said that you had a, a list of failures, you know, a very long list. Is there any sort of through line i guess in your own experience of like why you kept pushing on past like through those failures and moving to the next thing uh, for me it's probably just a case of aggressive stubbornness mm. i think that i think that's the reason that the question i'm asking myself constantly it is, is about whether or not i have any actual skill in this because i know for a fact that i am stubborn enough that if i had zero talent and skill I would still probably keep pushing through it. And that is not a that is not a good quality on my part at all. And I think that's why I find myself asking that question a lot, because I know what I would do if I had no talent, which is exactly what I'm already doing. Mm. So but for me, I think it is just a stubborn belligerence. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily a good quality. It's like it, if it's working out for me, then yay, but I don't, I don't want to recommend that quality. <laughs> well, I mean, you're saying stubbornness, and that definitely has a negative connotation, but I've always been one that said whether something is viewed as a good trait or a bad trait is someone else's view of it on you. So if, if, like, if someone looks at you and says, oh, he's really determined, then that has a good connotation. Mm -hmm. But it's the same trait. And one of the advantages as you get older and more experienced is you do start to get a better sense of your strengths and weaknesses. When yeah. you're younger, there's a certain I'm great at every part of this and the world needs to recognize my brilliance. The older I get, <laughs> I love my career. And I, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but the older I get, I have no reservations about sticking with the career I'm in. But I am much more comfortable acknowledging that there are aspects of what I do that I am definitely bad at like really bad at, and there's a reason that I need to outsource that. There's a reason I need to work with people who complement my weaknesses there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's even just communication skills. I have a tendency to talk at 50 miles an hour. And sometimes, especially when I'm doing stuff like Tim Travers, which is this very heady, out there scientific stuff, I have to remind myself that people don't have the faintest clue of what I'm talking about, and that's on me. Uh to explain myself better and getting to a point where you can realize it's not the other person's fault for not following. It's on you for explaining this badly and you need to find a better way to communicate that. Yeah. Yeah. If the ultimate point is communication and yeah, that's a really good point. Well, on film sets, everything is communication because yeah. no one can be all things, but especially when you're directing, you need everybody 
to understand you. And one of the things, and I've been on enough other sets where I wasn't directing, that I've seen firsthand the folks who have a certain attitude of, I'm genius, I'm brilliant, and if you're failing to understand me, you are intellectually weak. And, you know, mm. fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> not, and not, real, not realizing that's a fault. Exactly. The job of a director is to be a communicator because it's other people who have to realize that you're not the one setting up the camera. You're not the one doing the acting. So half the time, you're not the one doing the writing or the editing and learning to communicate. That is a challenge. And it's one I, I freely admit I struggle with. And I imagine the communication is different with, with each person. Oh, and you have to find your dynamic within your team because some people communicate very differently with each other. After after this film comes out and, and however it's being released, what's next for you? Right now, there is no next for me. So one, one of the other parts of this industry is how much time is devoted to a single film. Mm -hmm. So while production is done and the first phase of post-production is done, there is still much, much more that needs to be done to finish this film. And there is the work of selling the film, which is an entire multi-person stage mm -hmm. team involved. My executive producer is Ben Yenny. He's a sales agent. He's a distributor. And we go through him to try to connect to our final distribution so that we can get this thing out there to an audience and scene. That's the thing that pays back the investors. That's the thing that pays all the celebrities on the back end with back end points, because a lot of them took massive pay cuts to what they're entitled to, to help me out on this. So a lot of them don't really get a lot of their money unless the film is successful. Mm -hmm. I don't really come out of this well unless the film is able to get out there. And that is a part of directing as well, is that business side, especially at this phase of the career where I am not a sought after director. If I want a gig, if I want a project, I have to be the one who puts that project together. Mm -hmm. And that's something every independent director struggles with. So for me, the next thing is the same thing. It's Tim Travers. Mm -hmm. Now, what I am doing is we start looking into the projects we want to follow that. So we're looking at a couple scripts that I really like, a couple properties that have a pre-existing fan bases that I think would be a really good fit for my creative tone with uh, a person that we don't have a contract with him yet, so I can't name drop him. But if you enjoy video game commentary, you know who he is. Okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Is there anything else about Men in Black that you want to talk about? We kind of that we started to use that as a springboard for other stuff, which is totally fine. But is there is there anything else about that film that you want to? There was one thing at the end of Men in Black that always bothered me. It's great, but I never understood why they abandoned it in all the sequels. Will Smith's suit in the very yeah. last scene <laughs> is such a cool, good-looking suit, and it never comes back. Mm. No explanation is given for this. No even though it's an objectively cooler suit than the normal one. And I know it's a minor thing. They wanted to go with the iconic look for the sequels, but it's always bugged me. <laughs> also, I just want that suit. It I don't think it looked as good suit. as me, but I really want that suit. It was just a phase his, his character went through, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was his post-K midlife crisis. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He's like, K wore that tie. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Just broke just broke down too many chairs. <laughs> Every time he'd try to tie it, he'd be like, that's how Kay tied. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what else can I tell you guys? Like what what weird details of doing independent films can I share? 
I don't know what can you share. So. <laughs> so I'll tell you something that's wonderful about getting to do a film. Mm-hmm. Catering. Oh yes. Every morning, especially when you're a director, if you try to skip breakfast, somebody will find you with food, <laughs> and it will be a specially prepared meal that craft services made sure you were going to get. Our caterer is one of the best chefs in the city of Spokane. And I will admit, I gained like 15 pounds during that production just from how good the food was. <laughs> oh, when lunch rolls around, it's like they would insist you go to front of the line if you're a director. I loved it. Oh, I loved it. You're like, my no, inner no, elitist. No no, no. <laughs> no, no, I can't. Oh, yeah, no, no. We're all equals here. I can't. I can't. Oh, if you insist. <laughs> One of everything, please. Exactly. <laughs> Only a finest. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, I said, that's with... part of making a film. Is <laughs> I remember. Uh, so you talked about how you did some background acting when you were in LA. I I did as well. And um, yeah. So it's a weird world, but I remember doing some fairly low budget like sitcom stuff. Uh, and I won't mention the show, but. Uh, speaking of craft services, for this particular show, it was it was awful. Um, they had oh, like wow. a, a bowl of apples for like sixty extras. <laughs> well, to be clear, it was awful for the extras. Oh, yes, yeah, now, yeah, the yeah, actual yeah, human, yeah. Now, sure the actual humans. I'm sure that the actual humans got. Actual, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, they didn't get um, dog food. <laughs> I remember though, like the first time that I I was a background actor on a feature film, though I was blown away. By the like how extensive craft services was, uh, and then when we got to lunchtime, and they're like, "Do you want chicken, fish, or steak?" and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> just like normally they just give us donuts. I don't know what's like. Uh, can I have all of them? And they're like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." <laughs> I'm like you okay, said three food things. So <laughs> in my early days in LA, I was so poor when I was doing background. I would be that guy who would go through the food line twice uh-huh. and the second time it would be with Tupperware. oh my gosh there were so many people like it, uh, for whatever reason was always people who were like 60 years or older that would come through with just bags they just have like ziploc yeah. bags and they would just dump stuff from craft services and from lunch into their bags every day and stick it into their like little backpack or their large purse or whatever there just was what they did and i'm like Shoot, all right, yeah, there's dinner. I always loved the old folks on background because they were the ones who had figured it out. All Uh the young kids, stuff like that. Like, is this going to be the day that I get discovered? No. (laughs) This will will not be the day you get discovered, 21-year-old. Just put the food in the bag. That ain't how it works. The old folks, they were just having fun. Uh Like, half the folks are retired. This is a fun thing to do on the side where they get to be on sets, see really interesting things in their spare time, and eat really well. Those are the folks who had it figured out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was a fun time. I do remember enjoying that that period of my life, but it was, uh, you did see some interesting things, so depending on what you're working on, but... Depending on where my career is, I might end up doing it again someday. I can think of worse. <laughs> I can think of worse ways to spend my old age. Yeah. Was there any point when you're because it's different when you're working on something. Uh, it's different when you know the ins and out of something. But was there any point when you were working on the feature, uh, Tim Travers, that you were able to kind of just like, I don't know, feel that magic of movie making that just 
I feel like you can't really describe unless you're actually there. Literally every day. Every day. Perfect. Yeah. That is not a hard question at all. As it was exhausting, it was at times soul-crushing, it was stressful beyond any conceivable measure. And all I want to do is it again, like I said mm-hmm. before, because that magic is there. When you There is something, and it's not just filmmaking, there is something about when you have dozen to 50 people in a room all being creative all working with a singular goal it's one of the reasons i don't understand the directors who want to stand there and be a dictator Mm. you have actors there bringing everything they have to a role you have your director of photography taking the director's ideas and figuring out how to find the best way to compose it finding the right balance creatively between themselves and the director you have the gaffers and all of the grips for figuring out how to light it because even if you're not deciding how to light it just figuring out the problem-solving technique of how to get the light from point A to point B and maneuver around a camera that's doing a 360-degree spin and yet somehow making the lights not visible is a creative problem-solving endeavor. Mm -hmm. That is the joy of filmmaking, and there's no person on set who isn't doing something important. I'm sure on the huge Hollywood productions, there's probably some flab, but on virtually any indie production, most people are having to give it their all just to get to the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And everybody is working together. The, the only thing I could describe, it's like, it's like, I don't know, combat or something. Because everybody has that same singular goal. And that is a team building exercise that even when you can't stand the people you're with, you're all in it together. That is part of the joy of film. It is both art and camaraderie. And it's part of the pressure of being director, by the way, because you really want the thing that everybody's pouring their heart and soul into to not be a piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. I really, uh, I mean, I think we both enjoyed the short film. Uh, we mm. both really hope that the, that the feature does find success. Um, it's really exciting to hear you talk about the experience of making it. I mean, it won't come out here. because won't come out. <laughs> but... When it comes out on, we'll we'll buy it. We'll do a we'll do an episode. On there you go. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Do a deep dive review show. And let's and we'll see if you guys enjoy it and follow it in the least. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you said that you hadn't really that you're not quite at that distribution step yet, or at least you're maybe just dipping your. Oh no, we're there now. But um, oh yeah, no, we are know... already shopping around. We're talking to folks. <laughs> Is you, it? I'm sorry. I, I stepped on what you just. Sorry, I stepped on what you just said. That was no. rude of me. Let me shut up. You're g- <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is it coming to Columbus? Is this? it coming to, yeah, no. Can you make that happen? Can you the make Mal- it? Specifically the Malco. <laughs> it's eight theaters. No, is there, do, are there any ideas on, on where it might be uh, visible? Ultimately, this will be the decision of the distributors. And as they're the ones who are going to be paying my and everybody else's bills, I do what will be doing what they say. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> for, for me, my, my biggest goal for our distribution on this, which goes far beyond finance, is whichever distribution method gives me and everybody who worked on this film the most level of eyeballs. Mm-hmm. I want everybody's work to get seen. So even a lot of money, if it's going to end up on a shelf somewhere, is not the most appealing contract to me. Mm. Well, wherever it ends up, you'll have to let us know so that we can we can check it out. I will. Stimson, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We're really glad that this all worked out. It's been exciting to hear about your experience as an independent filmmaker and 
and uh, the success and failures that you've you've uh, made your way through. But it sounds like Tim Travers is coming together really well, and we're excited to see what, uh, where it goes. So. All of us in post-production are really happy with it. And I got to say, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to sit down and listen to this podcast after you've edited it to make it sound like I'm coherent. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Simpson. Uh, it's It's been a blast. So we really enjoyed it. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you.